0: Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're uh, in verse 7, and we're recognizing that there is a title that was given to what we know as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the Old Promise, bound in the law. And we see the word ministration here. You could say the administration of ministry or simply ministry, the ministry. uh, How is it? I'll back up even one more verse um, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, uh, who also have made us able ministers of the New Testament, Paul is saying, not of the letter, he's intimating here what he's going to speak about in verse 7, not of the letter, uh, kind of code for the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. So we embark then on verse 7, but the ministration If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So there is a comparison that Paul is giving. Now, Uh, Context has to be laid again. We had an unusual service last week, so I'm gonna kind of tidy all that up here and recognize that Paul is arguing with believers that he was not only aware of, but many that he had led to the Lord in the starting of the Corinthian church. But in that church, there were those who had come to the church apparently touting letters of commendation. Uh, This is their approval. This is their witness of being who, either a good teacher or, or whatever, they were commended to the church. And Paul makes the argument, I really don't need a letter of commendation because you are my letter. You are, you are the ones that have received the gospel. You have heard the truth from us as well, those that preach the gospel. And yet he's going to differentiate himself from those who needed letters uh, of commendation that were teaching something erroneous. And what they were teaching and it was common, of course, in the time of the New Testament. How does salvation work? How does the gospel really work? We've heard now the gospel that salvation is by faith in Christ who died on the cross. And, and if we're going to be redeemed, we have to place our faith in this Jesus. But is that it? Does there need to be more? And recognize that there's a deep history in the Jewish people. There's a deep history of their covenant in the Lord, the Old Testament promise, that they were uh, to follow God's commands, they were to follow the keeping of the law, there was a sacrificial system, and there was circumcision as a covenant between God and his people. This marks you as my people. Well, there was in this question, uh, don't these things need to continue? And so Paul is addressing really what is a heresy, a taking away from the truth of the gospel, the simplicity that salvation is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's what he's addressing. Now, when he does so, he talks about then, in a very specific way, especially for uh, Jews to help them understand that the Old Testament was not an end to itself. And so we have verse seven, that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was even given by this verse a name. This ministry was a ministry of death, written and engraven in stones. Now, it was glorious. It was glorious, and he describes how, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses. For the glory of this countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now, all of that was, there was an introduction to God's law. There is an introduction to God's people over what he expected from them. And you know, reading from the Old Testament, there's so many truths that we're not gonna dive into there that God gave promise and following him. God gave promise and the idea that they would be God's children, he would be their father if they would follow him and do as he said. He also gave promise of what would happen if they didn't. And uh, we understand that from the Old Testament. But he says that it was a ministry of death that was given with glory. So we referenced last week in the giving of God's law, how that Moses went to Mount Sinai, he's on the mountain by himself, and with great glory was he given, and so much so was he given the law, so so much so when he came down, what happened? His face radiated the glory of God. His face literally, as we understand scripture, literally lit up. And it was, there's a lot of debate over as to why Moses covered his face. Uh, But it seems pretty clear uh, from the reading of the Old Testament there that the people were afraid to speak to him because of the glory that was shining from his face. So he puts a veil across his face. That's going to come up in this passage as well. But Paul is saying that that Old Testament, that Old Covenant, came with glory. And it was seen and experienced. And obviously, a very big deal. But he says, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And what it means in verse 8 is be more glorious. How how shall not the ministration or the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious than the ministry of the giving of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant? Now, we looked at two passages, and I'm going to just give them, I've culled them down to just very specific passages. Parts Romans 7, verses 5 and 6, and then Galatians 3, verses 21 through 24. And we do have a long way to go. This is really, again, um, bringing us to speed. So Romans 7, verses 5 and 6, talking about the purpose of the law, how the law had a ministry of death, as it was described in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Romans 7, verses 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we are serving now as those who are born by the Spirit, have a testimony of faith in Christ, that'll come out later, but by those who have a testimony of faith in Christ, we no longer live by the letter of the law, we live instead by the Spirit to serve in newness of spirit and not the oldness of the letter. All right, Galatians 3, verses 21 through 24. So is the law somehow against God or somehow a bad thing? We reference this, and it's a very direct answer. In Galatians 3, 21, the answer is God forbid. So verse 21, Galatians 3, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly or verily righteousness should have been by the law. So again, we're going to take a moment here to say, that this really is the gospel message. There is no way to be right with God by a performance-based faith. You're going to keep this and avoid this. You're not going to do this anymore. You're going to do this. Any of those standards of righteousness built on your behavior are going to fall short because man cannot obtain righteousness by a keeping of a law Or a set of laws. And I'm going to say again that that means that there is freedom in Christ. Verse 22, same passage, Galatians 3, verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded how many? (coughs) All what? So who's a sinner, everybody? Every one of us? All of us? The Scriptures has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that what? <clears throat> so the promise of life, of saving faith comes in Christ or is directed in Christ and in Christ alone. Let me read verse 22 again. <clears throat> but, the, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, (coughs) excuse me, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should hereafter, should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our what? (coughs) It was, excuse me, folks. It was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. I apologize, I haven't been been coughing all week, but here I am now. So you can pray that my coughing doesn't become a distraction the whole service. Pastor Phil, if it does, I'll turn my notes over to you. (coughs) Just what you want, I know. All right, so the law was our schoolmaster, it was our teacher to show us that we need a savior, amen? Amen. So this is incredibly important to remember right now. Are you a sinner? Are you? Have you proved it? <clears throat> Have you proved that you are a sinner? Go one step further and say, do you continue to prove that you're a sinner? Now that's sometimes start for believers to come to. now. Should believers be sinning in the same fashion as we were before we were saved? Well, no. But do we still struggle with sin? Yes. Now, the reason this is important is because there's all kind of doctrinal error that flows out of this uh, in many different veins. There are those that would teach you today that you can reach sinless perfection, and I often think, what kind of a definition do you have of sin then? What is your definition of sin? And it, it teaches an arrogance, I believe, and a denial of scripture too, that uh, somehow I am now sinless. Listen, while we, should not be, while we are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, while we're new creatures in Christ, for those who know him, We still struggle with sin in this flesh. That doesn't excuse it when we sin. It doesn't make it okay. Matter of fact, the heart of the believer is someone who's thirsting after God and seeks not to sin and is grieved when we do. But the point is, every last soul who is saved is saved by grace. None of us deserve it. None of us are worthy because of ourselves. But... The newness here of the Spirit is contrasted to the Old Testament, that the Spirit leads us to understand and leads us to a knowledge of Jesus, so that when we place our faith in Him, we are not under the death sentence of the law. The law was our schoolmaster, our teacher, to show us that we need a Savior. Now, We've already seen one way, or talked about one way, how the Old Testament had a glory to it. But verse eight says, how, 2 Corinthians 3, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And we're gonna break that down, and we're gonna be in Romans five. So how is the ministry of the Spirit more glorious? Well, I'm gonna give you verse 12 of Romans five, <clears throat> but then from there, I'm going to pick up from verse 15 and move forward from there. So how is it that sin entered the world? Romans 5:12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, who is that one man? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and what? Death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, okay? So that was the introduction for how sin came to the world. But let's pick up up at verse 15 through 21 now. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. So here there is going to be a comparison again. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, and you're gonna see this phrase really riddled throughout, you're gonna have this much more. All right, so for if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man who, Jesus Christ, hath has done what? Abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. <clears throat> For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, here's the phrase again, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall do what? Reign in life by one. Who is it? Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So this opportunity to be right with God in spite of our offenses is offered to everyone by the death of Christ for your sin. It's offered to every last person that walks the planet. It's offered to everyone who wants to be freed from the condemnation of our sin because we are lawbreakers. We have been offered This gift of justification of life. For as by one man's, verse 19, disobedience, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Read verses 20 and 21 out loud with me if you would. Verses 20 and 21, read with me out loud. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So you have moreover, the law entered, for what purpose? That the offense might abound that our sin might be made large, that it might be understood the gravity of our offense. But where that abounded, and so let me ask you, how much is sin abounding in the world today? How, how rampant is the effect of sin on the planet today? Is it pervasive? Is it riddled through all of community and life? Sin touches what part of our experience? All of it. Everything. Picture the nicest things you've got on the planet and they all are still under the curse. They still reflect the curse. They still reflect the, the, the depravity and the degradation of all the material things that are on the planet, right? How how much do you need to prove this? All you have to do is look at your house, right? Is there something in your house that's falling apart? Is there something in your house that needs repaired? Here's an ugly question. Is there something in your house that needs repaired again? (laughs) Again? Everything is showing the curse and its effect upon the world. And where sin is abounding, what is the testimony of God through the gospel? How is this new ministry of the spirit better than the ministry of the law? How is it much better? Because where the law was a school teacher to show sin to the world, you have verse verse 20 here, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Amen? So, what that means is that God's saving grace to your life, if you're a believer in Christ, God's saving grace to your life is that His grace superabounds your sin. Think of that. Think of that. That God's grace superabounds your sinfulness. So, doctrinally, when we get saved, now think about this, folks. The doctrine of the Bible is that God gives us eternal life when, well, not to trick you, we lay hold of eternal life when we die, but God gives eternal life when? He gives it the moment you believe. So on the way home yesterday, uh, we were, uh, there, was a, there was a bridal shower yesterday, right, Hannah? And my understanding is that now you are a queen of spatulas. <laughs> Am I right? I think you got like two? Did you count how many spatulas you have now? Is it like 78 or something? I don't know. It's it's a lot. You could spend the rest of the service, right? So Uh, There was that going on, but I had kids. We went to prepare our Pinewood Derby cars, and then afterwards we we went to some fine dining. I don't think any of the kids I took yesterday have ever been to McDonald's, so I took them to McDonald's. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, But on the way home from that, I was driving, it was driving, one of my kids said, Joe wants to know, Dad, Joe wants to know what eternity is. So, you know, again, he's not five yet, okay? But he wants to know what eternity is. And have fun trying to tell a five year old what eternity is. Uh, it's time without end, it's never ending, it goes on forever. This is the blessing of the New Testament, the ministry of the Spirit. It's that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was never designed to be an end to itself. Represented in the fact that the glory that was shown on Moses' face would fade away or die or end. But the glory of the New Testament is that where there was sin, God's grace superabounded that. And our understanding of that is, doctrinally, is that when God saves us, what sin does He save us from? Well, let's talk about, it. yes, all, well, let's talk about it in terms of, of time. What sin does he save us from? It's not uncommon for people when they get saved to understand that I am asking God to save me from what kind of sin? Most of the time, people are thinking of their historic, their past sin. But when you come to know the Bible, you come to understand that God's grace superabounds. He didn't only save you from your past sin, what else did he save you from? He saved you from your past, your present and your future amen? amen now everybody here ought to be able to worship god in truth and in spirit over the testimony of the scriptures that that's how he saves us amen. past present future it's all forgiven because god's grace superabounds. god's grace is that now let me ask you do you do you deserve to have your sins held against you? Have you been naughty? If God wanted to, could he bring up a few ideas for you? To say, hey, uh, you know, you haven't exactly always been what I've called you to be. And by the way, I think for all, those of us who... Maybe i have known Christ for some time. That's probably the harder thing for me. It's one thing to know that I was a sinner before the gospel. It's another thing to think about the sin I've had after the gospel. And this happens. I mean, maybe it's part of the study of these scriptures, but I think it's just part of walking with the Lord. I think you, may, you probably experience it too. There are times where these truths just settle in my mind. I'm like, Lord, they, I... I I'm just right now thanking God for my salvation. I mean, right now, who am I to be saved? I was singing about it uh, yesterday and the day before, the, that, the fact that God's grace is there. And really, what are we anchoring on in our salvation? What are we anchoring on in our present relationship with Christ? Christ if you're anchoring on it because you're such a good person, all that view of yourself becomes oppressive because we're not really that good. And it diminishes the glory of Christ. We are saved by his grace. And we know the song, it's an amazing grace. Amen? But it says it did much more abound, verse 21 that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. And there's this point unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we need to get back to 2 Corinthians 3, <clears throat> and then we're going to come back to Romans 8 in just a moment. In 2 Corinthians 3, we've already read verse 8 how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be more glorious? Now, verse 9, for if the ministry or the ministration of condemnation be glory, which the case has already been made, much more, there's that phrase again, much more does the ministration or the ministry of righteousness, and it says it this way, exceed in glory. Again, more reason given, verse 10, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Now, that might be lost in our translation, but it simply means this For even that which was made glorious, the Old Covenant, has no glory by comparison of the surpassing glory of the New Covenant in Christ. So, by comparison, it's like the Old One had no glory compared to the glory of the New Testament, the glory of the New Covenant. Verse 11. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. And that takes us to Romans 8. And that takes us to one of the other ways that this ministry of the Spirit is more glorious than the Old Testament. The ministry of the New Promise, the New Testament, is more glorious than the Old Promise. For while the Old Promise, number one, magnified sin the new promise is that grace supersedes our sin it is greater than that but the second way that it's glorious that it's been alluding to really this whole time is that there was a temporary nature of the glory of the old promise it had a purpose but it was never meant to be permanent or eternal and that's where the jews were struggling the Jews were still struggling with the fact that there was a Messiah, which the scriptures they knew foretold, who would fulfill the law, who would be the rescuer of their souls, but yet they could not see it, which again we'll get to in just a moment, but they, their eyes were blind so that they could not see it. They were hanging on to the old law, and by hanging on to it, believing then that this was the permanent condition, that the sacrifices, those ways of, uh, of trying to have a walk with God were somehow permanent. And Paul is telling you that that was never meant to be permanent. What is permanent is the New Testament. And how do you know that this new promise is permanent? How do you know? It uses the language of eternal life. It uses that language. So we're in Romans chapter eight. So as you're in Romans eight, I'm gonna begin in verse nine, but I'm gonna read where we just left off in 2 Corinthians three for a moment. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. Romans eight, verse nine. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is what? So uh, there's a lot, I, I'm trying to decide right now how, di- how deeply I go into that. But the short answer of the Spirit is this. Every person who knows Christ as their Savior has all of the Holy Spirit you will ever get. You're not gonna get more of the Spirit by some experience or some sign gift or because you went to camp to learn a sign gift, or because you had somebody impart to you more of the Spirit, Um, none of that is true. What is true is that if you know Christ as your Savior, He has given His Spirit to be in you, and He owns you as one who who inhabits or lives within your life as a temple of what? The Holy Spirit. Ghost, the Holy Spirit. So every believer is a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. All right? So the Spirit lives in us, is with us at all times for those who know Christ. And so much so, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be, that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And the takeaway is that means the Spirit doesn't live in you. So either you have Christ and you have the Holy Spirit or you don't have Christ and you don't have the Holy Spirit, clear? Verse 10, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now translated, what's that mean? This old flesh is gonna die. This tabernacle is gonna fade away, right? But the spirit is life because of righteousness, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are what? They are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then what? What? heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now, this isn't the only passage we're gonna go to. I, am, I made a decision, and we're gonna, I'm gonna go here. So, uh, it's been bugging me, and so I'm gonna do it now. Um, I, I recently was given, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna lose track of the glory of the spirit. Okay, we're gonna come back to that. I want to tell you about false doctrine that's happening right here in this valley and in very large churches. Um, somebody had a doctoral question recently and they asked me to watch a preacher and give my take on what the preacher was doing. And here's what the preacher was doing. He was speaking as one who has special gifts of God that were unique to him so that he had a spiritual discernment over the body that re- uh, revealed itself with an authority and a power. So that, uh, I'll give you the climax. This was done throughout his message. And I wanna tell you, I can do, I can do what he did. It's not hard to do. I'm just trying to think about which one I should tell <laughs> But here's what he did. Here's what he did at the end of the message. <clears throat> they had an invitation, and I had to go back and listen to his invitation again, but when I, when I listened to it, I recognized he was asking people to stand. And the reason they were standing was not really clear. It was something like, if God's working on you, won't you stand? Well, they went through that and there were some, I don't know, 20, maybe 30 people that stood. And uh, then he said, you know what? Uh, God works this way. Sometimes, you know, other people will stand if uh, they just need an invitation. Why don't you look to the person next to you and say, hey, I'll stand with you if you'll stand. He said, I'm already standing, I'll stand with you. You need to stand. And so they have another, however many people will stand up. And now all the, the, the takeaway is all these people are now saved. That's kind of the idea. All these people are now saved. Now the preacher, here's what he did. He said, now, no, wait a second. God's told me there's five more. There's five more. There's five oh, more of you out there. Where are you? There's five more, right? Where, come on, there's five of you. Where are they? And now, oh, there's one. Okay, there's four. There's four more. Where are you? There's four more. Come on, you know you need. Where are you? Okay, there's three. There's three. Oh, two just stood. There's, there's one more. Where is he? Where is that person? <clears throat> Listen, folks. That I'm going to tell you, that stuff is heresy. That stuff is false. It's manipulation. It's 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 using the spirit in a way that says this person is getting personal divine revelation that everybody else doesn't have. And guess what that means? I have authority, and everyone that's following that really operates in that context. There's something special about that person. They have a power and authority that I don't have. Now this is the part. <clears throat> this is the part that I can do too. That that is totally manipulation. He looks over the crowd and he asks various people, finds a young lady, he says, young lady, why not you stand? Has her stand and he says, you've had a troubled life he goes on and gives all this kind of gobbledygook of nobody believed in you and, and, you, and kind of this victim stuff, right? Nobody believed in you and nobody trusted you and, and you've got some real hurts in your life. That's, by the way, could you say that about a lot of people? It's like, and then he says, then he says put your hands over your heart. Put your hands on your heart. And he said you're going to feel the power of God in three, two, one, Sometimes those people do. They, sometimes those people will fall down. Why? Well, I believe that sometimes they fall down because really their emotions have been brought up so high. And all the tension is drawn right to them. It's a very, it's a very powerful thing to have that happen in the context of a bunch of people. But then he'd go over other people and pray, God's gonna bless you this year. This is gonna be your best year ever. You're gonna have the most success. You've. I would always think... Well, I'd love to talk to those people in a year. Where in the world do we get that if we follow God, we're not going to have trouble? If we follow God, we're only going to find financial success. It's ridiculous. But that's happening right here in the valley, in a church that experiences easily a 1,000 in attendance. My point is this. The New Testament says this, every one of God's children have his spirit. Amen. And you have all of him you will ever get because he takes up habitation in your heart. And now the glory of that New Testament is that you don't have to make a trip to go to uh, the temple, or you don't have to make a trip to go see the priest to make a sacrifice. You don't have to go and gather all the tribes together however many times a year. Instead, you always have the Holy Spirit with you. Now, what a glorious thing to be temples of God walking around where the Holy Spirit is always in habitation with you. But really, what we're looking at in this passage, coming back to Romans 8 and verse 17. The glory of this testament is that it is eternal. The glory of the new covenant is that it is not transitionary or temporary. It is a covenant that will endure for all eternity. It is a promise that will always be. So what that means is there's not a day that we will be with the Lord in heaven, redeemed, that we will have ever deserved it. But it also means every moment in heaven, which will be eternal, we are the living testimonies of the grace and the mercy of God that washed my sins away, that took my sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. This is the testament. This is the eternal promise that he's given. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 bears witness of that New Testament promise and the eternal eternal nature of it, and you will be blessed to read it. So, let's go there, 1 Corinthians 15. What is the nature of the New Testament, the nature of the promise? You know the passage well, you'll be encouraged to read it out loud, so let's read it together, verses 51 through 57. First Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 57, reading out loud with me. Behold, I show you a mystery <clears throat> But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. is the law but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ we are eternal victors because of Christ so much so <clears> then <throat> in the last passage we are called heirs and joint heirs with Christ now the last point of the passage in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 we'll see in verse 12 that we're going to cover this morning 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. So the ministration of this New Testament, this new promise is more glorious than the old because where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Whereas Moses' giving of the old covenant was temporary, this is eternal. Eternal. We have in verse 12 then, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Now, the seeing then is since this is true, since this is true, that we have such hope, I think it takes a moment here to define what the word hope is here again. The hope here is not in the English in which we typically know it. When we say hope, we typically think of something that we anticipate that may not come to pass. But that is not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is confident anticipation and expectation. Seeing them, then that we have this anticipation and expectation with confidence that this is what God has promised, he says we do this, we use great plainness of speech. Now it took me a little bit to unpack this because what does it mean by plainness of speech? Different translations translate this a little differently and for reason, it's by the way, to be clear about this, uh, when there are differences in the King James, it's not because, it's not, uh, simply because there's a conspiracy. If you look at the definition of words, you can begin to understand why it was translated differently other places. I don't think this is a mistranslation. I never come to that place when I'm looking at the King James. But it does bear some unpacking. What does it mean by plainness of speech? Well, seeing that we have this hope we use great plainness of speech. Simply means, in its basic definitions, here's the definitions of the words, of the word that's used, great plainness of speech. It's one word, and it means freedom of speech. It means an unreservedness of speech. It means to speak without ambiguity or plainly. Another way of understanding it is to speak without mystery. To speak so that there is no misunderstanding Truth. Now, what was the problem? Well, the Jews, again, there was a mystery that was being revealed, the mystery of the gospel, of which the Old Testament foretold the Messiah that would come, where that mystery would be made clear or made plain. So it also this word means that is translated great plainness of speech, means to speak openly or frankly. It has the idea, again, without concealment. It has, as another part of its definition, great plainness means to be clear without figures of speech or comparisons. The other aspect of the word means to speak in the absence of fear or to speak boldly, hence confidently, Cheerfully or with courage, all that is bound up in the word, this word, this phrase that we have in our our New Testament, is this great plainness of speech. So let me read then again. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Now our message is going to end on this point. Now you had a message two weeks ago that challenge all of us to speak Jesus, okay? I'm gonna say that this is applicationally where Paul is in this passage again. The way of salvation is as clear as it can ever be. The way of salvation is so clear that you can teach children what God has done for the saving of a soul and children can believe. You see, one of the things that is bothersome and part of the reason I even added to the service today, the story of what I'm going to call a false prophet or a false teacher in a church in this valley. Let me give you another one. You ready for another one? I had a testimony with somebody this week of another church in this valley. Please listen to me. I'm going to speak with all authority of the scriptures. What does a person need to do to be saved? What do they need to do? Believe on who? And that believe means to what? It means to place our faith in that Messiah, that Son of God, not a Messiah of our own making. Amen? Amen? All right. Are there Baptist circles that get this wrong? How badly do they get it wrong? Now listen to this, testimony this week. Talking to someone who had a conversation with a pastor, again, in this valley, and it was about, don't get me wrong, and if you, if you leave mad, you better, you better talk, okay? I just asked you what a person has to do to be saved, and I think you gave the right answer. Believe in Jesus. In Jesus alone, amen? amen. Got it? Yes. All right. This pastor was so stuck on the King James issue that he had the audacity... To tell another sister who was trusting in Christ alone that he would pray for her salvation because she was not saved by using the King James. Now, folks, I don't care how passionate you are about that doctrine, you do not get to add something to the gospel. That is heresy. Jesus says. That is, and is, I'm going to tell you, you know the reason you should reject stuff like that? You don't find it in this book. When I was talking to somebody about that other guy I, was, I just called a false prophet, I said, you know something about their message, you know what you found? They didn't use their Bible." They used a phrase of the Bible here, a phrase of the Bible there. They were not in the Bible to defend what they were doing. Matter of fact, so bold with this was this false teacher that he, here's what he did. He said, "You know what? I, I can't help it. I'm going to do it. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to do it anyway." He said, "I'm going to speak in tongues, and I don't need an interpreter." That's what he said. Now I disagree with his interpretation of tongues, I disagree with how he's doing it, but the very face of scripture says, don't do that without an interpreter in the midst of God's people. And he said, I can't help it, I'm gonna do it. And why are you gonna listen to somebody who's disobeying God standing before you saying I'm a preacher and got special gifts? Your special gift is your own interpretation of the Bible without using the Bible. And it's not isolated to charismatics. Baptists can do it too. We've got to have the Bible. We've got to have the Bible to protect us from error and to keep us on a path pointed towards Christ. But the blessing of all of this is that this covenant This promise is given to everyone that believes so that you and I have a freedom in Christ where we aren't living under a law, under a temporary status of there is a a plan to keep the law that's going to fade away someday. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed, so the salvation is found in the Jesus of the Bible, the only begotten of the Father, so that anyone who comes to that Lamb of God who died for their sin, he promises you everlasting life. <clears throat> there is freedom in that, and there's joy in that. And there's comfort in that. And there's hope in that every day. Amen. So the great plainness of speech is that the Bible is explicitly clear. Now the world may not want to see it. But are we saved by any works of the law? Are we saved by any any doing of our behavior? It is all in Christ. It is, we say it all the time, it is Christ and Christ alone. Now I'm gonna say this as well. What's made me sad about what I've given you today, and by the way, I wanna be careful about this. I I don't know your interpretation of my spirit in this. I'm not trying to put it on, but as, I, as, I, as I'm speaking to you, I recognize that I'm speaking from a position of boldness. I also think it's important to know that I'm not speaking to you from a fabricated boldness because I've made up something. The reason I can be bold with you is because the scriptures say so. That's what gives... Us boldness. What concerns me is that there are churches, by we're talking about people that are gathered to worship God, there are churches that are being led by false doctrine and false teachers that are mi- misrepresenting the way. And you leaving this building this morning are a steward of the truths of the God of the Bible. You're the disciple maker. You're the one that's walking out of here to be the missionary in this valley. And by the way, if we wondered, do there need to be missionaries in this valley? Absolutely. There's all kinds of false doctrine going on. Now, that's where the Jews were. The Jews were operating under a different plan than God had given. And here's, the, here's the, the culmination of the gospel. Nobody is saved by making your own path. We referenced it in Sunday school. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God. God rejected one and took the other, didn't he? Why? Because one came to God with his own standard, the other one obeyed. The gospel is the same today for everyone. Anybody that will come to Jesus in faith, what will he do? Save your soul. The world needs that message. The world needs that freedom that only Christ can give. It is a glorious message, truly more glorious than we can know. My kids asked me the other day, I may have been part of that same conversation, what are we gonna be like in heaven? It's not going to be like this, right? Our family tried to watch some stupid movie the other day. There's doctrine in the movie, right? People died. And then somehow this guy was supposed to (laughs) visit those people that died. You know when he visited them. You know what they came. He saw them as. He saw them coming back as animals. It's like we're nuts. (laughs) Is your high ambition of life to come back as a butterfly someday? (laughs) Come on. We are. We. I'm telling you, there's no amount of the kind of nuts we can be outside of God. We are a, a an amazing mess. We are an amazing mess if it wasn't for the doctrine of God. What a mess we are. But how clear is the God, I want you to think about that. How clear is the gospel? Think about that. Think about the amazing clarity of the gospel. The gospel now some, not only given back in Genesis, and all the prophecies that were fulfilled to reveal the Christ that came. But all the witnesses, all the testimonies, all the miracles that substantiated the proof of who Jesus is. And the enduring nature of that gospel message, some 2,000 years hence that Jesus dies on a cross, that from that time forward, that gospel message, that mystery that has been revealed has continued to be revealed and it is clear As clear as clear can be. If you want to be saved, you've got to come to Jesus. That does for us this. It brings us here in this place today to a place of rejoicing over the grand glory of the gospel message that we've already read about. This this is not going to continue to be. I'm going to someday, praise God, get a glorified body. Amen? Amen. And do we, again, do we understand what it's going to be like? I No, I don't. Matter of fact, when my kids ask me, I think you're going to almost be able to build a bicycle with the parts that are left behind from my body. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to be on? Like? The Bible gives some clues, but don't we understand it's better than we can imagine? That's right. And It's real. It's true. It's eternal. It's not temporary. And he's promised that to every child of God. Amen. Uh, all right. I, I, I hate feeling like a pathetic preacher. But I will tell you, I, when I preach passages like this, and I'm trying to help us understand the glory of. Of this New Testament, it's here. And I feel like as a preacher, I can't, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot attain. And then I think, who are we to have such promise? God, help us to use plainness of speech. God, help us to have this boldness without fear to speak Jesus to a world around us. It is the greatest message the world has ever known. And sadly, there are many who don't know it.